0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.BereanBibleChurch.org. Thank you.
1: For our study this morning, I want to go over a passage in Romans that changed my understanding on the name Jesus. It was this text that caused me to begin to use the name Yeshua instead of Jesus. So if you're wondering, you know, why does he always say Yeshua? Where does that come from? Hopefully, this will help you understand that. Now, before we look at our text, I want to get the context a little bit here. So we're looking at the book of Romans. So who was Romans written to? Romans, right? Hey, pretty good. You guys are sharp, all right? (laughs) You know... Okay, that, that may, we say, that, that sounds so basic, right? But how many people read the book of Romans and they're like, look what the Lord said to me. Well, first you've got to understand who he's talking to first, and then see if that applies to you. He's writing to Romans. He's writing to the Roman Christians. Now, we know very little about the founding of the church in Rome. It's possible that Jews from Rome who became believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost carried the gospel back to their synagogue in Rome. Now we know from Acts 2 that some of the believers that were there at Pentecost were Romans. So they heard the message, they went back to Rome, they carried the message back. That's how we see it anyway. We don't have a lot of information there. But this church was most likely established by Jewish Christians. Now by the time that Paul wrote Romans, the church at Rome was famous throughout the Roman Empire they were celebrated for their faith. We see this in Romans 1.8. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Yeshua the Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So people were hearing about the faith of the Roman believers. Now, it's likely that a church existed here in Rome by the late 30s or early 40s. So this letter was written to believers in Rome. Now, the big debate comes as to whether Paul is writing mainly to Jewish Christians or mainly to Gentile believers. Notice what Paul says in the intro, in verses 5 and 6. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Yeshua the Christ. Now, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, the ethnos. And that's nations here is ethnos. Some translations have Gentiles among the nations, the ethnos, the Gentiles. He specifically includes the Roman readers within the sphere of his Gentile commission. Now this would imply that the majority of his readers were Gentiles. And I think this view is strengthened in verse 13 of chapter 11 where he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, again ethnos, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Now, this doesn't exclude Jewish Christians. I think it's quite clear that he addresses them throughout the letter. So it's my opinion that he's addressing both Jewish and Gentile believers who are at Rome in the first century. Now, when we come to Romans 9 through 11, this section is called the Theodicy. Y'all remember what a theodicy is? Well, that's good. You'll learn something today then. You know you learned this, but you forgot it because we went over this in Romans, All right, A theodicy is a vindication or a defense of God. The word comes from a compound Greek root. Theos, which means God, and dikos, which means just. So the goal of a theodicy is to exonerate God from all blame. It's saying that what God is doing is absolutely just and absolutely righteous. Romans 9-11 through is the greatest vindication of God's righteousness and justice found anywhere in the pages of Scripture. Now in light of what Paul has taught in the first eight chapters of Romans, a vindication of God is necessary. Now you may say, why? I mean, what has Paul said that causes a need for God to be vindicated? What has he said? Well, over and over, especially in Romans 8, Paul has been applying to the church the blessings originally promised to Israel. Israel was promised the Holy Spirit. But this promise has been received by the church, we see in Romans 8. Israel was promised a future resurrection. But Paul speaks of the resurrection of believers, of the church. Israel was called God's son, but now believers... Are God's adopted children Israel was promised an inheritance but now it has come to the church Israel was God's chosen people but now believers are called chosen see with the application of so many of Israel's promises being received by the church the question arises what about the promises he made to Israel has he gone back on his word Did those promises not count anymore Did He just take those promises and give them to the church? We see in chapter 9, verse 3, that Israel is accursed and cut off from Christ. This was because they had rejected the gospel. They had rejected Christ. Now here's the problem. The whole Old Covenant was simply packed with promises that God made to the Jewish nation. They were Messianic promises, promises that went with the Christ, the Messiah. Now since the majority of the Jewish nation did not accept Yeshua as Messiah, then the unbelieving Jew would say that there's two possible conclusions here. Either the gospel that Paul's preaching is not true, because the Jews rejected it. Or else, if it's true, then the promises of God to Israel have failed. Because the Messiah... And the blessings to Israel were connected inseparably. So the Jews would say either Yeshua is not the true Messiah or the word of God is proven false. So in Romans 9-11, through Paul shows that the promises made to Israel are true. The gospel is true also. Now think about this. This is where it gets real practical for you and me. If God rejected the nation of Israel, if they did not receive the promises made to them, then what assurance do we have he keep His Word to us? None, really. And what security do we have then? See, if God set aside Israel, couldn't He set aside us? Without spiritual security, we live in fear of spiritual death, fear of your sins being held against you and coming under the wrath of God. How could we possibly have security if God broke His promises to Israel? Well, did God break His promises to Israel? No, He did not. Here's the thing. Here's what we have to understand. God's promises were misunderstood. Now, I know it's hard for us to imagine somebody misunderstanding the Word of God, right? But it does happen. The promises were made to the true Jews, those who trusted in Christ, not to all of national Israel. Look at Romans 9.6. This is one of those verses that you have to know. You have to have marked. You have to understand. Because this will change your understanding of Scripture. Paul says, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. See, that's the issue. God's promises have not failed. He didn't reject the promises He made to Israel. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. All right. Now, what I want you to see here is that the promises haven't failed because God never unconditionally promised to each offspring of Abraham covenant blessings. God never intended that all the nation of Israel would be redeemed. Paul is saying here, there are two Israels. Do you see that in this verse? Not all who are descended from Israel, who's that? That's physical Israel, belong to Israel. So, we have physical Israel... Now, I want you to notice that my box of physical Israel includes spiritual Israel, because spiritual Israel are part of the physical descendants. So you have physical Israel, but then within physical Israel, you have true Israel, those who trust the Messiah, spiritual Israel. So one could be an Israelite without being a true Israelite. They were of national Israel. They were born in Israel. They were circumcised. But they weren't part of true Israel because they didn't have faith in Messiah. The promises were not to national Israel for the most part. They were to true Israel. And that's why it seems like the promises have failed because they were for true Israel. So, who is true Israel? Well, true Israel is Yeshua and all who trust in Him. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about types and anti-types, the type of Israel. We could say they are not all in Christ who are physically descended from Jacob. Therefore, the unbelief and rejection of ethnic Israel as a whole in no way interfered with the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and purposes. Now, in chapter 10, Paul begins his explanation of Israel's failure with an expression of his deep and abiding love for his people. The chapter division signals a shift in Paul's emphasis from God's dealing with Israel in the past, specifically before Christ's death, to His dealing with them in the present. Now, with that as a background, I want to look at a few verses here in chapter 10 this morning. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will be put to shame. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. These verses highlight a characteristic of the gospel of salvation by faith. It's universal in scope. Now, let me be clear here. I'm not saying, I'm not talking about universalism, all right? Which is the teaching that God, through the atonement of Yeshua, will ultimately bring reconciliation between God and everybody through human history. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's heresy. What I'm saying here is that the offer of the gospel is universal. It goes out to Jews. It goes out to Gentiles. All right? It's equal to both. He says in verse 11, whoever. He says in verse 12, no distinction. He says in verse 13, whoever. The offer of the gospel is universal. One, And see, this was hard for the Jews to grasp because they thought God is our God. That's it. Nobody else, you know. And he's saying, no, it's universal. The Gentiles can also have this. He says, for the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. This is how we should discuss theology. This is how we should discuss the Bible with this saying, the Scripture says. You know, not my pastor says, or not so-and-so says. No, the Bible says, and then go from there. Then you're on good solid ground. Okay, let's kind of we need to stick with the scripture. The scripture is authoritative. Our pastors aren't. Our opinions aren't. Paul quotes here from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, and the words "put to shame" are from the Greek word kata kuno. and it conveys something happening outside of us that lets us down. I think it's better translated disappointed that's how the new american standard translates this everyone who believes in him will not be disappointed this is a statement of assurance that as believers in christ we will stand before god without disappointment we're not going to be disappointed at all that we trusted in him romans 10 12 says for there is no distinction between jew and greek the same lord is lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call upon him no distinction Paul's Jewish audience here would say, what did you say, Paul? No distinction? No difference between us and Gentiles? You just couldn't say anything more devastating to a Jew. See, these people who believe so strongly that they are different than Gentile people are told by Paul, there's no difference. You know, if a Jew went to a Gentile country... Before they came back into Jerusalem, they would stop and shake the dust off their clothes, off their shoes. They didn't want to bring Gentile dirt into Jerusalem, okay, because that dirt was defiled, all right? They wouldn't go into a Gentile house because they thought Gentile houses were defiled. They wouldn't eat with Gentile utensils or Gentile plate or drink out of a Gentile cup because they were defiled. They didn't even want to touch Gentiles. In fact, the Jewish prayer every day when they arose in the morning was, I thank God that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, I've always looked at that, you know, as kind of derogatory towards women, but I've read some rabbis who bring out an interesting point that this wasn't a slam on women. They said this because women bore the burden in that day. I mean, they did most of the work. They really did. You know, and they're living in a desert climate that's very hot, and women are totally covered up in what color clothes? Black. And the reason for black? Because you didn't want to see any, you know... They had this idea that modesty was something special, you know? Where'd they get that crazy idea from? You know, the, the women are totally covered up, and the women bore the burden. So th- thank God I don't have to do all the stuff a woman does, was more the idea. maybe that's true, I don't know, but it gives you a little bit of a different perspective there anyway. <laughs> now, the word distinction here is from the Greek diastole, and it means difference or division. There's no division, there's no separation, there's no difference, listen, so far as the relationship to God. That's really important, okay? Paul put it this way in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Yeshua. Now, sadly in our day, we've got to make this distinction, when Paul says there's no more male or female... He's not talking about, you know, we don't have that anymore. We all have shims or hymns or whatever, you know. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there's no difference before God. Whether you're a Jew or Greek, you still have a relationship with God. Whether you're a slave or free, that hinders your relationship with God not at all. And there's no male or female. In other words, because you're a woman doesn't hinder your relationship with God at all. This is true of us as Christians. We are all one in Christ. We are all in the same body. And see, in that culture, it's very important to understand. There's not a distinction. Jews, Greeks, they all worship. He says, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. Now, His riches, He's talking about He's rich in mercy, He's rich in grace, He's rich in love, rich in anything you need to cover your sin and give you salvation, He's provided for you. He's rich in that. And then in verse 13, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this is a quote from, anybody know where this quote comes from? It comes from Joel chapter 2. It says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as Yahweh has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom Yahweh calls. Alright? The context of this passage is about covenant renewal. This text was fulfilled when? Pentecost. Okay? Acts chapter 2. In the last days of Israel. Now what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Now, because of the next verse, verse 14... I used to understand calling on the name of the Lord as something beyond faith, beyond believing. I said used to. He says, how then shall they call on Him and whom they have not believed? So I took that, okay, you got to believe first, and then you can call on Him. You can't call if you haven't believed. And how are they to believe in Him and whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So according to this verse, you have to believe first, and then you call upon in the name of the Lord. Now, we know that believing makes you a Christian, so I have taken this as something different from faith. I used to see this as an act of a believer that brought them salvation in a physical sense. See, that's how that word is normally used in the Tanakh. Salvation. It's deliverance. So I took that more in a physical sense. I used to see salvation here talked about different than eternal life used to until I taught through Romans. It's amazing that when you actually study through a book verse by verse how it will change your ideas on a lot of things, right? But now in light of what Paul says, for example, in 10.1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now Paul, I don't think he's praying here for physical deliverance. He's praying for them to have salvation, eternal life. Then Paul says in 1010 that confession of Yeshua as Lord results in salvation. And now in 1013, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it seems to me that Paul's using salvation in this text in the sense of eternal life. All right? Eternal life. And, And people, you have to understand that it's not, when we see the word sozo, the Greek word sozo, salvation, it's not always used of eternal life. Remember when uh, they were on the ship? Paul's heading to Rome and he's on the ship and he told the, the people on the ship, unless you abide on the ship, you cannot be saved. Sozo. So he said, you got to stay on the ship, guess what, you get eternal life. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about physical deliverance from drowning, from death. you got to stay on the ship. So we have to understand sozo in context. Always. So what does Paul mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, to answer that, Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. In order to call on his name, you have to know what his name is. Do you agree with that? Okay, let's go to Philippians 2 then. 2, 6-8. through eight. This is an incredible passage. Um, they say that this was an early hymn of the church. Which tells you a little bit about their songs they sang. They're deep in theology. Okay, this is one of the the greatest theological text in the New Testament, who though he was in the form of God, this is talking about before Christ became a man, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." He emptied Himself. This is the Greek word kenosis. This is where we get the self-emptying of the Lord Yeshua in His incarnation. He left heaven He became a man. Now, notice the next verse. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Therefore, That gives us the contrast. Because of Christ's humility in verses 6-8, through His exaltation follows. We see this over and over in the Scripture. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves, God exalts us. Now the words here, highly exalted, are from the Greek, and it means to elevate to a surpassing position to exalt beyond all others to exalt to the highest maximum majesty this particular exaltation is so grand that this greek word is used nowhere else in the whole bible he's been highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name the word bestowed here karizomai that sound familiar what's karizomai mean grace it's a grace gift it's freely given So what did he bestow on him? He bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now the writer of Hebrews says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. His name is more excellent than the angels. Now whatever his name is, it will be consistent with both testaments of Scripture. It will imply not just the meaning distinguishing one person from another like Joe or Bob or Mike, but it will imply something of the nature of Christ. We've talked about this many times. In Hebrews, the names have meaning. It'll talk something about His person, revealing His character, revealing who it is. The word name here is the Greek anima, which can mean name, rank, personality. Here the emphasis is on title of rank above all ranks. It's more talking about position. Now, why give him a name? Well, one of the common biblical ideas is giving of a new name to mark a new stage in a man's life. Abram became Abraham. Abram means father of a multitude. Isn't that a great name for someone with no children? And then he became Abraham. Jacob became Israel when God entered into a new relationship with him. Simon called to follow Yeshua and his name was Peter. Alright? So the promise of the risen Christ to both Pergamos and Philadelphia is the promise of a new name. Now Christ has many names. Right? Uh, Yeshua, Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, Emmanuel, But here he receives a new name. Now some say that this new name is Jesus. That can't be. Alright, they say that's the new name he's given. He's given the name Jesus. That can't be. Why can't that be? What? Okay, that name was never given to our Savior. Alright, it never was because... That name didn't exist back then, all right. Now you may be thinking, yes, it was because the angel told Joseph to call him that, right? Look at Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, there you go. The Bible says his name is Jesus. Now, did Joseph and Mary call their son Jesus? No. There's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay. The complete Jewish Bible puts it this way. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yeshua. Which means Adonai saves. Because he will save his people from their sins. Alright? So she's to name him Yeshua. Our Savior's name when he walked the earth was Yeshua. That's what his mother called him. That's what his friends called him. In Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 16, it makes it really clear that he came from Hebrew descent through the tribe of Judah. In other words, he was a Hebrew, right? He was born and raised by Hebrew parents who raised him in the Hebrew culture. Does that make sense? He spoke Hebrew. The name Yeshua is literally a transliteration of the Messiah's name. So when you say Yeshua, that's a Hebrew word. Now, I know there's different pronunciations. We may not be pronouncing it exactly the right way, but it's a whole lot closer than saying Jesus. Okay? (laughs) This is the name that the apostles would have known him by. This is the name his mother would have called him. You know, Yeshua, come on, it's time to eat. Come in the house. Nobody ever heard this other name. Now to the Jews of the second temple period, almost all Hebrew names had some kind of meaning. They weren't like our names. You know, his name is Bill. What's Bill mean? Just, that's his name, Bill. That's what we call him. Well, Yeshua had a meaning. The name Yeshua literally means Yahweh's salvation. Is that who Yeshua was? Yes or salvation from Yahweh. And again, I guess this is why when I dealt with this text, I started using the name Yeshua because the name Yeshua has a meaning. The name Jesus, I know, has meaning to people that, you know, they say, well, it means this to me. That's great. But Yeshua means this to everybody. This is what it really means, all right? Yahweh's salvation or salvation from God because that's who Yeshua was. He was the salvation of God. So that's why I use that name. Now the English name Jesus derives from the Latin name Yesus, which translates the Kone Greek name Yesus. Now in the Septuagint and the other Greek language Jewish texts, such as the writings of Josephus and Philo of Alexandria, Yesus is the standard Kone Greek form used to translate the Hebrew name Yeshua. So, they took Yeshua's name and they put it in Greek and it was Jesus. Prior to being transliterated from the Hebrew Bible, the name Jesus didn't exist in the Greek. So, it wasn't a name that was even in Greek. They just take Yeshua. How do we make that Greek? Well, let's say Jesus. Now, in the 17th century, the J replaced the I. To make our familiar name Jesus. The King James Bible, the 1611 edition. You ever heard people say that? 1611, that's the only King James they use. Okay? And they're big on the King James 1611. I wonder how many people could ever read a 1611. This is a 1611 edition here. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So listen to this, people. Prior to the 17th century, nobody ever heard the name Jesus. So our Savior has only been called Jesus for about the past 400 years or so. Now, listen, I'm not saying that makes it wrong to call Him Jesus, okay? I'm I'm telling you, this is my personal conviction. I like the name Yeshua. It has meaning to me. I don't think you're a heathen if you say Jesus. I don't think you're not saved if you say Jesus, okay? I understand that that name means something special to people today, but it wasn't his name, okay? (laughs) Say you could go back in a time machine to the 16th century, and you're talking with believers back there, and you say, oh, I just love Jesus. They'd say, who? Who's that? They would have no idea who you're talking about. Because that name didn't exist back then, just 400 years ago. Now, notice the parenthesis here in the complete Jewish Bible. And here's, here's a, one of the problems I have with the complete Jewish Bible. It says, which means Adonai saves. This would be better translated, Yahweh saves. That's the meaning of our Savior's name. Now, the reason the complete Jewish Bible uses Adonai Is because the Israelites were afraid to use God's name. They were afraid they might use it in ways that, you know, would take it in vain or something. It was over a matter of confusion. So instead, they called him Lord. And that's what Adonai means Lord. And so the complete Jewish Bible says Lord. Well, that's not a good translation of his name. The name from the Hebrew, the name, is Hashem. Um, So that's what they would try to do. They would say, they would call him Adonai. They would call him Elohim, which means God. They would call him Hashem, which means the name. Instead of saying the name, they just said the name. Because they tried to stay away from using that. Now, after they returned from the Babylonian captivity, about 500 B.C., they refused to use God's name at all. And it was out of respect and out of fear of what that name represented. So they just didn't say it. So the Hebrew people simply started saying Adonai whenever the sacred name was intended. This is seen in our Bibles as Lord with all capitals. L-O-R-D, all caps. That's from the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now some say that Jesus is His name in English. So listen... Well, yes, Yeshua is His Hebrew name, but His English name is Jesus. How do you get that? Who came up with that? Let me ask you this. What is Amparo's name in English? What's your English name, Amparo? Why do we call her Amparo? Because that's her name. That's her given name. So instead of making up something else, when she first started coming to the church, every week I'd say, tell me how to say your name again. I mean, I'd never heard it before. It was hard. I had to work at it. You know, we should have just, when you came in, you're calling you Mary from now on. It's easy. No, we didn't do that. Why? Because that's her name. And so you want to take Yeshua's name and say, let's, let's make it something else It's easy to say. I have a couple of friends who are foreigners, and they have names that, you know, one of my friends is named Mutabi. Everybody calls him Bob. <laughs> Seriously, I went to where he works one day and I said, is Mutabi here? And they go, who? I said, Mutabi. They said, no one like that name works here. <laughs> I'm like, I found out they call him Bob because it's just too hard for people to say. I'm like, that's foolish. name—that's Bob's not his name, you know? Mutabi's his name. So the name given to our Savior, which is above every name, is not the name Jesus. He was never called that. 400 years ago. And listen, it's not the name Yeshua. That's the name he got at birth. All right? So, what other name than Yahweh has a right to be called the name above every name? No name. The name that is above every name is Yahweh. Now, the movement of verses 9 through 11 does not stop at the phrase bestowed on him a name, but flows straight on to the universal confession. That Yeshua is Lord. Which suggests that the significant thing is the ascription of Lord in addition to the names already known. Verse 10 says, So that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow. It's not the name Yeshua, it's the name of Yeshua. The name of Yeshua is Lord. Now, verse 10 is a pretty direct quotation from Isaiah 45-23, where Yahweh, having declared Himself to be the only God and only Savior, vows that He will yet be the object of universal worship. It is this divine honor that is now bestowed upon Yeshua HaMashiach. Ha means the, Mashiach is Messiah. So that's His Hebrew title, Yeshua the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Now, these verses in Isaiah 45:20 20 through 25 speak of the uniqueness of the only God. In the Greek version of the Tanakh, the Septuagint, the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, is used to represent the personal name of God of Israel, Yahweh. Now, in most English versions, Yahweh, or Lord, is spelled with four capital letters, which stands for the name of Yahweh. Look at uh, Isaiah 45:20. He says, "Assemble yourselves and come; draw near together, you survivors of the nations." They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a god that cannot save. He is speaking here of the heathen and their idols and their worship of false gods. He says, "Declare and present your case; let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh?" All caps there. That's Yahweh. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Yahweh is saying here, I am unique. I am the greatest God. There is no Savior besides me. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God. There is no other. By myself I have sworn, by my mouth has gone out a righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? This is where our quote in Philippians is taken from. This is Yahweh, the God above all gods, that is speaking. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To Him shall come and be ashamed all who were increased against Him. In Yahweh all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. It's in Yahweh, the sovereign God, that salvation will come. And in Philippians, this title, Lord, is ascribed to Yeshua. So what He is saying here, Yeshua Hamashiach is Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's the confession. God the Father exalted Him and gave Him a name, the name Yahweh, which is the name of the sovereign God who created all things. So Yeshua HaMashiach is Yahweh. Now look at Young's literal here. He says, Only in Jehovah said hath one, have I righteousness and strength. So let me say a, a word here about Jehovah. I'm sure you're familiar with that. You've heard that name. In Hebrew Scripture, the personal name of God is written with four Hebrew letters. It looks like this. yod hey vav He. Alright? It's called the Tetragrammaton because it's four letters. You know how many times this yod He vav He appears in the Tanakh? Close, close to 7,000. 6,829 uses. And listen, all your English Bibles have covered this name up. They don't use it. They translate it as Lord. So whenever you see Lord in all caps or whether where you see God in all caps, all right that's also from the Yodevave. Yahweh. it's the God's name but our Bibles have covered it up. Well we're not allowed to the Jews we're, and they did that because of the Jewish influence. The Jews don't say it so we'll trans, we can't translate this Yahweh, we won't say it. That's ridiculous. Do you think he didn't want us to say it what he put it in there almost 7,000 times? He wants us to know His name. We're to trust His name. It's who He is. Now, in the first temple period, at least until the Babylonian exile, 586, the divine name was regularly pronounced in daily life. I mean, you read through the Psalms and David, Yahweh this, Yahweh that. He's always you know talking about Yahweh. And you read through the rest of the Scriptures, you hear them use the name Yahweh. It was regularly pronounced. But by the 3rd century B.C., Although the Tetragrammaton was pronounced by priests in certain temporal liturgies, that was about it, the Jews avoided its use, employing instead many other substitutes. When reading or reciting Scripture, the custom was to substitute Adonai for Yahweh. Just put in the word Lord there, and that's why our Bibles have it that way. Now, until the early Middle Ages, Hebrew was written without vowels. By the 6th century A.D., a system of vowel signs was developed by the Masoretes, the Jewish scholars of the period, and they did that to help us in pronunciation. They superimposed the vowel signs of the word Adonai upon the four consonants of God's name. And then in 1518 A.D., in his monumental work of Christian mysticism, the Italian theologian and Franciscan friar Galatinus not only realized that the Masoretes had placed the vowel signs of another word with the consonants Yahweh, not realizing that, he fused the vowels together and formed Adonai to give the, to give the church the name Jehovah. That's where it came it just from. It's from a misunderstanding. He took those vowel signs. He didn't know what they did. He fused together, came up with Jehovah, a word that has absolutely no meaning in Hebrew. So strike Jehovah from your vocabulary, okay? It's not a biblical word. It shouldn't be in our vocabulary. And I have a problem with Young's that uses that, okay? And again, they're just following this Jewish thing that we can't say the name. I believe he wants the name said, sung, talked about. All right, so the name given Yeshua, which is above every name, is Yahweh. Let's go back to our text in Philippians and notice the next verse. In verse 11, and every tongue confessed that Yeshua is Christ, Yeshua the Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this gives us the first Christian creed Yeshua the Christ is Lord. Or literally, this is Yeshua HaMashiach is Yahweh. They were actually confessing that Yeshua of Nazareth, the man who walked the earth, was the God of Israel. The only true God. Listen, we've seen that through the Gospel of John I don't know how many times, okay? Over and over and over it's drilled in our heads. This is who Yeshua is. He is Yahweh. Now the word that there in verse 11 indicates a purpose clause. With the result that at the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, which is Yahweh, this is why the whole universe is called to worship Him. Because He is God for everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Calling on the name of Yahweh in the Tanakh is an interesting phrase. It primarily refers to worship. It refers to calling out to God in terms of adoring wonder, praise, speaking of His majesty, extolling His virtues, humbling yourself beneath His sovereign power. This is an old covenant expression of true-hearted worship. You find it over and over. For example, in Psalm 79 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. They're not calling upon Him, they're not worshiping Him. Psalm 105 1 and 2, oh, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people, sing to Him, sing praise to Him, tell of His wondrous works. The group the group Acapella used that psalm and made a song out of it that's just incredible. I wish we could do it, but there's no music to it, so it's Acapella. But I'd like to have someone put some music. Anybody you, any of you out there that are talented, you can put some music to that thing. That is just an awesome song to sing. You know, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the nations. In the New Testament, it's also used, calling on His name, is also used as, as an act of worship. In Acts, it seems to be used as a description of Christians. Christians are the ones who call on the name. Acts 9.14 And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. Acts 9.21 And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? They're speaking of Paul. Havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? That's Christians. They were the ones who called on the name. And now, why do you wait? Rise up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Now, i got to say a word here. It's not uncommon for people to suggest that this text teaches that the way you get our sins washed away is by being baptized in water. Okay, that's called baptismal regeneration. And that's not what the Bible teaches, Okay. If you read this passage in the original text, you'll find that the word translated here, calling, is a participial in form. It's what's called an adverbial participle. Some grammarians call it a circumstantial participle. And then attach to it the nuance that appears in the text. Now remember, we don't have punctuation marks in the original text. So let's eliminate the comma after wash away your sins because an editor added that. Luke didn't put that comma in there. So let's read it this way. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. Now in that case, we have the washing away of sins linked with the calling on the name of the Lord. This is a personal faith. Calling on Yeshua, Yahweh the Lord. That's the way the text I think should be read. Baptism doesn't wash away sins. Faith in Yeshua... Who is Yahweh? Does okay. It's not you know. I know there's some verses that make you know Acts two thirty nine. You know there's verses in there that people say, oh, you got to be baptized. No, you don't have to be. Okay, there's a lot of wor- verses that talk about baptism. And it has nothing to do with water. It's a spirit baptism being put into Christ. Look at First Corinthians one two, to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Yeshua. Called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of the Lord Yeshua. So that's what Christians do. They call on the Lord. It's a description of believers. And notice what he said. This is the church of Corinth. This is the most messed up church that ever existed. Notice how Paul starts the letter. He says, to those sanctified, set apart in Christ. Called to be holy ones. Isn't that a good way to start out a letter to a bunch of messed up people? He does not say, "Man, you people need to find out if you're really even saved or not." He affirms their salvation, then he goes in to say, "You guys need to straighten up your act, okay?" Look at 2 Timothy 2:22. So the youthful passions and per- so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. So calling on the Lord is an act of worship. It is to believe that Yeshua is the God of Israel, the Savior, Yahweh. For everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Now, here's what you have to remember in Romans 10.13. This is a quote from Joel. And so if you go to Joel, he says, everyone who calls on the name of who? Yahweh. So we know how to translate Lord then In Romans 10.13, because it's a quote from here, so it's Yahweh He's talking about. Everyone, that is any and all who believe that Yeshua is the one true God, Yahweh, will be saved from the wrath of God. It's important that we understand that Yeshua is Yahweh. And and some people say, well, why is that a big deal? Why does it matter? Well, Yeshua says it matters. Okay? Look what He said in John 8.24. And this is another one of those verses you ought to know, you ought to mark. Yeshua says, "I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins." Now, the pronoun "he" is not there in the text. It's added by the translators. They want to help it to read a little smoother. The text says, "Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins." So what are they to believe? What's he saying that people have to believe so that they don't die in their sins? Well, the conditional clause provides the proper object of faith. He says, "If you do not believe that ego a me, I am." Yeshua is claiming to be the I am. Who's the I am? We go back to Exodus three. It's Yahweh. He is asserting equality with Yahweh himself who was revealed as the I am that I am. That day said, said, who should we Who do we say sent us? And he says, I am who I am. And so here's Yeshua said, unless you believe that I am, and I'm, unless you believe that I'm Yahweh, you're going to die in your sins. He's asserting equality. The self-existent, eternal God. That's who Yeshua is. And it's important to believe that because he says if we don't, you know, so many believe, oh yeah, he's a great prophet, he was a good man. He was, you know, something or other, but he wasn't God. Well, Yeshua makes it pretty clear here who he is. Listen to me, believers. Yeshua is Yahweh, the God of Israel. To deny the deed of Christ is to deny that he is, in fact, Yahweh in the flesh. It's to die in your sins. That's what Yeshua said. That's what he's saying, unless you believe that I am. Now, when I say that Yeshua is Yahweh, it's important to understand that I'm not talking about modalism. We've talked about this before. Modalism denies the distinction of the persons in the Trinity and says that God is kind of a quick change artist, okay? In other words, sometimes He reveals Himself as the Father, sometimes He reveals Himself as the Son, sometimes He reveals Himself as the Holy Spirit. So when he prays, who is he praying to? So he prays and then he says, hang on. And he runs up and becomes the Father. And now, okay, now I'm hearing you. No, that's modalism. That's ridiculous. This modalism sees the Father, Son, and Spirit as all the same person. Just operating in different modes at different times. And the first verse of the Gospel of John destroys modalism. It says, in the beginning was the Word. That's Christ. That's the second person of the Trinity. Watch. And the Word was with God. How do you be with if you are? You got that? See, the theological importance of these words, that they distinguish God the Word from God the Father. In other words, John is telling us that although the Godhead is one holy, eternal God, God the Word and God the Father are not the same person. Look at John 3.36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Simple, right? This verse is confusing because it says whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So we got to believe and we got to obey. Is that what it's saying? Well, the word translated here, does not obey, is apetheo. And the leading Greek lexicon of the New Testament, which is Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danker, make a very insightful comment here on apetheo that sheds light on this verse. It says, since in the view of the early Christians... The supreme disobedience was refusal to believe the gospel. Apitheo may be restricted in some passages to the meaning disbelieve, being unbeliever. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe won't see life. And you have to understand that because, and the Bible uses that, other places this way, the idea of obedience being obedience to the gospel, in other words, believing in Christ. They viewed that as obedience. Believing in Christ. Now, since the view of the early Christians you know, I'm reading that quote again, I don't need to do that. Let's go on to 1013 here. For everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. See, people believing involves the proposition that our Savior Yeshua is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the Creator of the world, the Creator of all things. That's who we trust in. The confession of a Christian is that Yeshua HaMashiach is Yahweh. He is given a name above every name. That is His name. That's who we trust. That's His person. And that's why I use the name Yeshua because it means Yahweh's salvation. And that's who He is to me. He's Yahweh's salvation. He is Yahweh in the flesh. Come to provide salvation for mankind. All right, let's pray. Father, thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the detail that is there. For Father, there's so much to be mined out of the Word of God. I pray that You would give us the heart of Bereans, that we truly would search the Scripture, Lord, to see if these things are so. Thank You, Father, for Your grace to us. Amen. Alright, questions, comments this morning? Yes, Dan. Uh, Two two items. First, I'm not sure about all Spanish names, but her name in Spanish means protection. Her name in Spanish means what? Protection. So, Spanish names have meaning? I'm not sure about all of them. (laughs) What does Jesus mean? J E S U S, Jesus, okay? That, that freaks English people out when they see the Spanish guy. Hey, my name's Jesus. What? No, it's Jesus. You know, but it, it does because we're like, what? This guy's not Jesus. You know, Stan? And the other, I just think in the 16th century, the alphabet was a lot easier. <laughs> Before they started adding words and changing things on us, right? You know, this, the fact that, uh, That I call Jesus Yeshua has probably gotten us more comments on YouTube than anything else. People go crazy over that because it's like there's something special to them about the name Jesus that, you know, the English name is like that. That's what his mother called him. Well, you know, you're reading an English Bible. I guess, you know, it says that in English, but it's hard to get people to think. It really is. I got a question here. I don't know who it's from, because it doesn't say. It says, if Lord, in quotation marks, in Jesus Christ is Lord, in Philippians 2.11, refers to Yahweh, why is not it in all caps? Because they don't do that in the New Testament. Okay? They translate Yahweh just as God. Theos. And I did a message on this because Theos is a really... Incomplete understanding. All right, they just translated God as Theos. Well, Theos can be used of all different kinds of people and things, and I think they did an injustice there. But in the Greek, they use Theos there, or for Lord, they use Adonai, and it's not in all caps because they don't understand, they didn't translate it over. And that's why, as we go back to its original context, we see that's how it's used. It is Yahweh. And so that's the quotation then we know that that's what Adonai is supposed to be saying there is Yahweh. There's probably a lot of places in the New Testament that it should be all cash Oh yeah, there no. The when it's talking about His birth, because
0: yeah. a lot of people read more and it's talking about His birth, and they're thinking Jesus, but it's talking
1: about the Father. I mean, yeah, it, I think, it again, this is another disservice that's done to us... Um, In the New Testament, just translating everything as theos, God, because if the word theos can be used as a lord, an overseer, a lot of different things, it doesn't anywhere near have the meaning that Yahweh does in Hebrew. And so that's, but again, part of the translation problems. No translations are perfect. That's why we need to use a bunch of them and then need to check behind them. On top of that, Anthony.
0: Just on what you just said, because because uh, I was wondering, uh, and it was hard for probably a person. I mean, it's going back as far as you can with the, with exactly what you know what it was said how how he wanted people mm-hmm. to know. Okay, um, and I'm just it's just a question just popping in my mind. I haven't probably been given the thought yet. It's just a question, so I'm asking. Um, so if and it's hard, again, again it's hard, so, because you're not God Himself, you know what I'm just saying?
1: So, me? Me? <laughs> don't start any rumors there, Anthony.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, if, you know, just go on, be with me. So, if you were Him, you know, I'm just, and that, again, you should stop me right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will. But I'm just saying, uh, if, if I hear people worshiping me in and, and their own. Of who I am or what I'm supposed to be called, uh, would you think through, through prayer and worship would He not accept in a certain level of, of a way to even
1: listen to me? Because we're using His name wrong, you mean? Yeah. No, I think that God understands how ignorant we are, yeah. and and I mean, here's the good thing: He knows our heart. Yeah. You know, because we do the best we can do from our heart. We don't understand. You know, there's a lot of arguments over Yahweh. What's the the correct pronunciation? You know what? I don't know what Moses did with that tape recorder. And so we don't have on tape how to pronounce that name. You know, so we don't know exactly for sure. And I'm not going to fight with people about it. You know, Yahweh is just the most accepted pronunciation. And so I'm I'm trying not to be any more weird than I have to be, you know, to the general population. So I use Yahweh because that's what people use. But, you know... I think that the Lord understands. We call Him Jesus. He knows who we're talking to. He knows we're talking to Him. I don't think He gets offended. He probably shakes His head like, not my name, you know?
0: <laughs> you have, in a sense, you would say, okay, <laughs> I'm going to calling Him Yahweh. You think, okay, I'm going to even more because you really receiving the authoritative...
1: I think it's just a matter of personal preference. As you understand, you know, for my sake, like I said, when I taught this text, I said... You know, that's His name. I'm going to call Him His name. Like I said, I'm not calling Empato Mary. It would be a lot easier for me. I call her Empato because that's her name. So I'm calling Yeshua. I'm calling Him His name because, again, that name has meaning. Yahweh saves. The English name, Jesus, the Greek name, Jesus, does not have that meaning. I'd like to stick to the meaning. But again, it's, it's personal choice. He knows, He knows who we're talking to. You know, he knows. As long as we understand who he is, that he is God. That's the important thing. We worship him as God. He is God in the flesh, come to earth to die for man. That's the important thing.
0: Well, he's or the one that performs
1: the work of salvation it. on us, starter.
0: So it's not he necessarily
1: you know, what name we use, right? And He is Yahweh, and He came to save us. Yahweh saves. Salvation of Yahweh. That's who Yeshua is. That's, you know, but yeah, that's... John?
0: you has years and years and years and years of, um, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Right. The name of Jesus. Man,
1: that, right. If you don't say that... Right. <laughs> Nothing counts. Your prayer's worthless. And that's the sad thing. You know, we have reduced Christianity to magic little formulas if you say the right formula at the right like if you feel something oppressive you say what in the blood of jesus and if anything you know any demon spirit hears blood he goes ah and he runs away no that's ridiculous people you know it's we reduce christianity to magic things like you pray this prayer and at the end you tack on in the name of jesus you get whatever you ask for no it's just you know we're really we have so many Christian buzzwords and buzz phrases that have really no meaning. Here's what I suggest: when you're talking to somebody and they say one of these buzz phrases, ask them what does that mean. And I don't mean be offensive; just say, "What do you mean by that? What do you mean by tacking that on at the end? What is, how, how does that work? You know?" Or ask them and make people think. You know, that's that's what we're supposed to be doing in Christianity: thinking. <laughs> you know, too often we don't. Because, you know, the church today doesn't train us to think. It trains us to feel, you know, get you hyped up, get you feeling good, and go on about your day. You know, not we don't use our minds too much anymore. And I think, you know, God said, come let us reason together. we got to think about this. We've got to use our minds. Gary? Gary? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, what you were just saying about phrases and all and tactics. On to what we're
1: saying. It, it gives us an out. It excuses our life and our lifestyle and our practice. So that we can say, you know, we work in Jesus' name or whatever. And that excuses the fact that we don't live like that. Generation. I mean, guilty. <laughs> well, there's a lot of them, I and mean, there's just a lot of phrases that you hear over and over, and you like, I wonder what that even means, you know? People say, lay it all at the cross, foot of the cross. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Explain that to me. Where's the cross? Where am I going to put this stuff down at, you know?
0: Went to the <laughs> I've had Catholic friends say, foot
1: of the cross, Foot of
0: the cross. Do what? I've had Catholic friends say, foot of the cross,
1: brother. Oh, foot of the cross? Yeah, I know. It's all at the foot of the cross. I'm like, where is this cross?
0: It sounds like the Bible over this year's entrance is been interpreted by mainstream media.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's just, you know, people pick up things and they just put it in the translation. You know, and this idea of the blood of Christ or the cross, all that is metonymy for the death of Christ. And that's what we have to understand. You know, plead the blood. It's like there's something magical about the word blood. No, it's the, the blood symbolizes the death, the violent death of Christ on our behalf. We have to understand those things, and we use it that way, you know.